It's Monday, February 25th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hansen, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, guys. Hey, hey. Hey. Were you up late watching the Oscars? No. No? I stayed up to the bitter end. <laughs> was it bitter? Uh, no, I was rooting for Argo to win Best Picture, so I was happy. Okay. You know, that's like the one I saw two of those, Les Mis and Argo, and I, I thought Argo was actually a really good movie. No, I, I didn't. So know. did other people, apparently. So, apparently, so did, uh, apparently, a, a plethora it, of voters. Made an impact. Uh, we're going to talk Barnes and Noble, Hewlett Packard, uh, and Lowe's, but we're going to start with Yum Brands. It was about three months ago that reports came out that antibiotics had been discovered in KFC chicken in China. The Wall Street Journal is now reporting that Yum Brands is cutting ties with its suppliers that source the chicken. Um, this kind of seems like a no-brainer type of move, Tim, and yet uh, I, I can't imagine it's all that easy uh, or a short process to just up and change all your chicken suppliers. No, it's 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 it would be tricky anywhere, and I think it's probably particularly tricky in China because – you know, you're switching from one known flawed supplier to now you have to go investigate other suppliers. And there's really – I don't think there's probably anyone in the in the food industry in China who you don't need to be suspicious of, sort of trying to cut corners or make things grow faster than they, than they naturally would. But, I mean, Yum's had to react. I mean, the comps that they're guiding towards are like – we're talking negative 20 percent neighborhood right. yeah. in, you know, in, in KFC in China. And I think – you know, and I think there's more to this story than Yum is even letting on – because if you do the math relative to their fourth quarter results, it looks like comps were already getting worse well before the chicken scare happened. And uh, you know, another interesting piece of this puzzle of Yum in China is that they made a, a very expensive acquisition of a hot pot chain there called Little Sheep Group, which has basically disappeared from their from their filings and and reports to the to investors. So something How much has did they spend. They spent, I think, all in. It was a nine hundred million dollar acquisition. They had they had previously owned some of it, and so I think they only uh, bought an additional six hundred million dollars worth last year to take it. You know, to take it into as a wholly owned subsidiary. But I mean, no color on what's happening there. Uh, sales look like they were down year over year relative to what Little Sheep was reporting uh, when they were listed in Hong Kong. So I think something in Yum China has has gone wrong, and. The company, it obviously is a huge part of their growth story, and they, and they need to figure out what it is that's gone wrong, get it right, and get it done fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, to that point, Jason, when, when you have the CFO coming out and saying, yeah, um, comps in China may drop upwards of 25%. That's, I mean, we've, <laughs> we've talked about companies that are lowering guidance for the year. That's an enormous amount. That is that is an awful lot. And, that, and one thing I Tim could probably answer this I'm curious to know what kind of presence Taco Bell has over there in China, if if really any at all. I mean, oh, no, no, I'm zero. KFC is, is so that's and that's pizza. their main. Yeah, uh, you're pretty much dependent on just that one name, more or less. And when you when you see a quarter of your sales essentially getting whacked like that, you, you investors need to take note. Um, shares of Yum Brands have dropped about ten percent, a little more than ten percent, since the story first broke a few months ago. Uh, they're up slightly this morning, which. Uh, on the one hand, seems like it, you have investors out there. They're saying, "Oh, okay, they fixed the problem. They've 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 made the decision. They fixed the problem." But I mean, the more I hear you talk about not just the challenge of getting a whole new supplier in there, but this little sheep acquisition, which in which apparently nine hundred million dollars is is now not even being dis- discussed by the company. Um, I'm wondering if the one percent bump the stock is getting this morning is an overreaction. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. Under, I thought the stock was going to drop a lot more. I mean, if you look at, at restaurants in China that have had food safety issues, um, generally speaking, the stocks get cut in half 
and it takes them nine months to a year to recover. So for example, right now, there's a, the, the noodle chain, Adjacent, which trades in Hong Kong, um, they got nailed with <clears throat> misrepresenting how natural their broth was. They said it was homemade in every store. It was actually coming from concentrate, made it a central facility. You know, their comps were down 25%, and, and it's been a year now, more than a year, and they haven't recovered yet. And that stock went from 12 Hong Kong dollar to five. Um, you know, Yum went from, you know, when this news started breaking, it went from, you know, I guess, what was it, like 72, and now it's at 65. I mean, that's, that's nothing in the scheme of things. And, you know, they've been, in my opinion, I think they've been slow playing, um, you know, telling investors what the real consequences of this have been because, they, they, you know, they said they had an issue, but then comps were down huge, and then they guided to even lower comps. I think yeah. they saw this happen really quickly, and they, but they, they, I don't think they've been 100% uh, forthright with their, with their investors. Is the next thing to watch uh, the comps coming out of China the next time you yeah, it's, report it's, services, I think they're, that they're, could be the thing to look at? Yeah, there are two things to watch. One is the comps. And then the second thing to watch, though, is do, have they adjusted their capex spending plans in China? I mean, if they're going to, because, like I said, the stock is priced for them to continue growing aggressively in China. If their comps are dropping and their and their restaurants aren't getting the same return on investment, then they're going to have to rethink how much money they want to put to work opening stores. And if you see that number start to come down, that's when I think investors can say, all right, you know, maybe yeah, they could solve this in three months. Totally possible, and if they do, you know, the st- you know, everything's fine. But if you if you start to see them change their strategy, their long term strategy in China, uh, that would be the real warning signal. Shares of Barnes and Noble up around ten percent this morning after reports that Chairman and Founder Len Riggio uh, says he wants to buy the company and take it private. And Jason, he wants the stores, he wants the online business, but he does not want Nook Media that division, which, as we've talked about, that. As of late, anyway, that's seemed to have been the bright spot, the lone bright spot for a very troubled bricks-and-mortar retailer. What do you make of the news? Seemingly, but, I mean, I think the bricks-and-mortar retail is what actually is profitable at this point, and the Nook has been sort of the lost leader. And I think it, it just it, – this demonstrates really the importance of coming up with not only a device – but then a successful sort of ecosystem to, to bring people in for, for a longer period of time. And so Amazon, you know, they started out with the Kindle and they really focused on building sort of that whole Amazon universe, uh, gone beyond just the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and tablets like that. Apple sort of focused on the device first, but the ecosystem that came with it is sort of, you know, real people in with iTunes and who knows what, you know, may happen next with whatever TV offering. And Barnes & Noble has always just kind of been sort of in the background trying to trying to grab a little bit of whatever they can uh, I think a lot of us are very familiar with with the store experience, and I think that part of the idea is that if you can get the stores back into a private setting where he doesn't have to worry so much about the public-facing consequences, sort of a la uh, what Best Buy might be doing, right. there, there may be sort of a market out there for a very limited footprint of those retail stores. I, I'm a little bit less optimistic on the, the Nook franchise, so to speak, because I just don't know that it's as compelling an offering as something like an Amazon Kindle or an Apple iPad, for that matter. But it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. Where is Microsoft in all of this? Because Microsoft last year put about $300 million into the Nook Media division. Um, and as a longtime shareholder, I know that certainly there, there have been uh, worse ways that Microsoft has burned money. Um, so, and, and maybe this is an investment that goes nowhere. But I'm wondering if you're, if you're Microsoft and you're watching this play out, are you, are you happy about this? Are you, are you looking forward to a point where maybe this gives Microsoft greater input or greater control over Nook Media? What do you think, Tim? Well, you know, 
$300 million for Microsoft is not a large sum of money. Right. And I would suspect that you know, they've, been, they've been putting small sums. They've been making a lot of small bets in the hopes that they could compete with Apple and Google because they've clearly lost a step vis-a-vis their competition um, in mobile devices. Uh, you know, in, in terms of whether detaching the bookstores from the nook harms either franchise, I think, I think it probably wouldn't because any deal would, would, would logically come with some sort of agreement, you know, working, working agreement whereby, you know, the Nook would still have a relationship buying the, buying the properties from the bookstore. You could probably still go into the bookstore and buy a Nook um, or have the bookstore have some sort of displays that would drive you to the Nook. So they'd, they'd figure out that relationship. What I, what I think this comes down to is that um, book, Barnes & Noble, the bookstores, is a, is a receding business and public investors tend to value those things very punitively. Dell, for example, was was not necessarily a shrinking business, but certainly a receding business. Right. And and you know Michael Dell didn't think it was getting uh, the um, you know the, wasn't getting the respect from the public shareholding public that that admittedly likes growth more so than than not growth, no growth. Um, the Nook, you know, if the Nook were to go to the debt markets and try to get financing, their interest rates would be onerous. I mean, it's a, it doesn't make money, as Jason said. And so it makes sense for that to be funded by public investors, equity. Um, it's a growth story to the extent that um, they can get some traction there. You know, the bookstores, it makes sense to be something to take private. You know, you can close some stores then without having, you know, the, uh, the, the media rigmarole if you want to do that. And if you can get some cheap debt, um, you know, your cash on cash return, Arguably, wouldn't be that bad. And I think a lot of those stores are, at this point at least, we talked about this a few episodes before with, I think Andy had mentioned that he was looking at some of the, the leasing obligations that they have. And in Barnes & Noble, they tend to be very – they're bigger stores that kind of anchor uh, shopping centers, so to speak. And so I'm sure that it's not so easy for them to just go through and just immediately start you know, cutting their store footprint, so to speak, but uh, with the strategy of, of possibly cutting it by about a third or so. I mean, again, I think there is a market out there, a very limited market for bookstores, and that's really probably the one that's left that, that would actually uh, be able to succeed. But, but that could be where they're thinking of going, is just maintaining that smaller footprint. Len Riggio is the founder, so he has an emotional attachment to this company, probably more so than anyone on the planet. Um, is, is his passion for taking this private, is that alone a reason to maybe pick up a few shares? Because, look, if this guy really wants to take this private and he's going to move heaven and earth to do so, then maybe you're going to get a, a nice little payday as a shareholder. Possibly, but that's pretty much a binary sort of event. And we tend to look at businesses and management teams with a little bit of a longer timeline. And so you're more or less just kind of flipping a coin at that point. And I, I don't think that anyone has any real insight other than Riggio himself. So I would probably stay away from it. On Friday, shares of Hewlett-Packard were up more than 12% after first quarter earnings came in better than expected. On Sunday, HP announced it is returning to the tablet market with the Slate 7, a 7-inch Google Android tablet. Uh, Tim, I know you personally were very excited by this news that they were getting back into the tablet business. <laughs> Made my weekend, Chris. Uh, <laughs> because they tried it with the uh, the touchpad, and that didn't work. Um, is this going to work? I mean, does anything Meg Whitman does not work? <sighs> you know, the, the, longer she's, rhetorical question? <laughs> the longer she's at the helm of HP, I, I think the, the more her track – I think you've got to give her the benefit of the doubt here. No. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is, I think, something that you can already file away as an afterthought. Um, you know, the, the people I think might want to start getting a little bit worried about these tablet proliferations is Google with the Android software. Right. Because at some point, you know, they want to – they don't want to be known as they don't. They want Android to be known as you know a great operating system. 
And if it end, and I, I haven't used the, the HP tablet, so this isn't you know this is a, a completely fact-free review, you know. But if this, <laughs> if this is a, if this is a crummy product and, and Android starts proliferating on crummy products and people get a bad opinion of Android, you know that's bad for them. Um, so I, you know, hopefully they, maybe they need to, to to step up a little bit on on quality control. You know, for HP, clearly they think one hundred sixty nine dollars is is going to be their selling point, both literally and figuratively. Um, it's the lowest price tablet on the market. Will that help them get share? Probably not. I think I saw a study a couple of weeks ago that said that like even though the Kindle was the most often gifted tablet, if people were actually were buying something for themselves, they always bought the iPad. And you know, so HB may sell a few and then have them returned and people <laughs> put their store credit towards something else. But I you know, I just don't think this is this is not the start of something great for HP. Despite their track record, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is a day late and a dollar short. And I mean, we—you remember the flip camera and oh, yeah. uh, that sort of went out on on on. Uh, I guess it was Cisco trying Cisco to buy that and make it, make it more available. Bought to them for about. But eventually, you know, it faded away in, into obscurity. And and I think that one, you know, when when people go out and buy a device today, they're looking for not only a device that gets them what they want to do, but they also are going to take at least some consideration to the support they're going to receive on that device on, on an ongoing basis. And it's pretty much guaranteed. I mean, again, this is, this is just a supposition, but I, I feel like, you know, HP tablet two or three years down the road, you're going to have a hard time finding really any support from that. You're going to buy that tablet, probably find out it's, it's not what you really wanted or, or maybe it is, but, but two or three years down the road, you're going to have a hard time finding any real support from HP on that platform. And, and so with, with an iPad or a Kindle, for example, you know there's going to be ongoing support, ongoing iterations of new tablets. And even if you're talking about a 20 or $30 price difference there, I don't think that's necessarily enough to really sway people to switch over to something like that that hasn't really proven out in any way. So it's like the Zune, right? Where they built in that feature where you could bump it against another Zune. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it would switch, you know, swap a song. But Share songs. You know, guys with Zunes were just out there doing like air fist bumps the whole time. You could never find someone to swap with. <laughs> you help me program my Zune. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. It's an iPod like everybody else's. I was going to suggest that uh, Tim register factfreereview.com and just set up a website. <laughs> that but, then, good, but then I realized that the factfree review already exists and I, I think it's called Twitter. So that's, that's a good point. Um, last question on HP. Meg Whitman said on the call on Friday that uh, HP is in year two of a multi-year turnaround. I asked us on Motley Fool Money last week. I'll ask you now. How much time should investors give Meg Whitman? As much time as she needs, Chris. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the, you know, um, no, I, you know, if you're investing in HP at this point, I'm, and there are, some, there are some smart investors who hold stakes in HP, I don't really know what you see. But I'm pretty sure it's not a big consumer electronics story. So I, I, I don't understand the strategy here that the turnaround is in the consumer electronics space. It seems like they're – and you know, I don't know HP. You know, I, don't, I, I, I don't know the company as well as I know some other companies. But it just seems like they have – I mean they've got certain franchises that they should be focusing on. And consumer electronics isn't really one of them. So I'd probably be questioning Meg Whitman um, already. But you know, what do I know? Uh, before we wrap up with our last story, I want to uh, uh, wish a happy birthday to two of our dozens of listeners, Jim Whitcop and Eric Ridehome, longtime Market Foolery listeners and oh, yeah. friends of the Fool. So happy birthday, guys. Celebrate in style. And if you're listening to Market Foolery, that's really – that you shouldn't be 
You're not celebrating your birthday if you're listening to Mark Nicola. I mean, I like what we do here, but come on, go out and live a little. Uh, Lowe's fourth quarter earnings came in better than expected, uh, but guidance for 2013 was disappointing, uh, among other words, Jason. And uh, shares are flat and seems like another another case where, um, where the guidance sort of uh, at least equals or trumps the results. Yeah, and it seemed like they, the fourth quarter benefited from some after effects of sanity, and they're going to see that sort of – Fall off uh, here in, in this in this coming year, but I think the market was was probably pretty happy about a gross margin uh, keeping relatively flat there. It means they're able to maintain at least a little bit of pricing there. But uh, I mean, when you look at, an, at a competitor in the space like Home Depot, for example, Home Depot is significantly larger. Uh, they're able to take advantage of their scale and bring it down to uh, better net margins consistently over time, and so it's tough to really look at lows and offer a reason. They're both trading around 22, 23 times earnings. Uh, I can't really find a reason why you would want to buy lows over a Home Depot. You know? Yeah, Tim, we were talking earlier, and, and, and there, there was a stretch of time when Home Depot was not a particularly well-run the Nardelli years. entity, also known as the Bob <laughs> Nardelli years. Um, but it just seems like since Home Depot turned the corner, it has been year after year that they've, they've really been eating Lowe's lunch. Well, I mean, if they're going to, if, if Home Depot is doing well, Lowe's is doing poorly. I mean, it, it's, it's almost a zero-sum game with those two. Their locations are all nearby each one another. Um, they're in the same space, and you know, they, you know, a couple of them do a little bit, a few things differently. Home Depot had a, you know, more of a supplier focus for a while. Lowe's, was, you know, for a while they touted the fact they had better lighting and catered more to people who wanted to come in and pick out paint and that sort of thing. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, if one's doing well, chances are the other one is not doing that well. Now. Having said that, that equation I think people thought was going to go out the window a little bit this year because housing starts were so strong. In 2013, in 14 was supposed to be like the year that remodeling came back too, and so you know rising tide lifts all boats. Right. Um, and, and except, how, no, yeah, except not really, <laughs> except not when it doesn't happen. Uh, you know, and housing stocks and housing affiliated stocks have done tremendously well. There have clearly been optimistic signs in the, in the home building and in now in the home remodeling space. Um, but, you know, the payroll tax has clearly affected consumer behavior a little bit and that there are still some warning signs out there. And as Jason pointed out, both, you know, when you've got two somewhat expensive stocks and one is clearly outperforming one another, the other, you know, on an operations basis, you know, I, I, I don't see what's a compelling story would be for Lowe's and, you know, the investment thesis is, you know, if Home Depot keeps doing well, chances are Lowe's is going to keep struggling a little bit. And I don't know how they hit the comp number that they forecast they're going to get to because they haven't hit that in, I don't know, years. In a long time. Yeah. Uh, I know you guys are both handy around the home, but if, if there was... Dangerously so. Dangerously so? <laughs> dangerously If handy. there was, uh, is there one aspect of your home improvement game that you would like to get better at or like a particular skill? Like for, for me, it's electrical work. Yeah. No, I, that's me too. I don't do the electrical work. It's that's, expensive. I'm happy to outsource and that. dangerous. See, that's the one I'd want to get better at. That's what I'm saying. Right, 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 right. So right, if right. I can get better at something on the home improvement front, yep. it's the electric. I think side. that or plumbing are the two I, where I fall down, which, you know, if you could be good at one of those, you'd probably save yourself thousands of dollars a year. Yeah, I absolutely agree with the electric. Although, I mean, I, I don't even feel like I want to get better with electric. I'm just happy to sort of outsource <laughs> that and have someone come in and do it. But plumbing, I feel like I've dealt with a couple of plumbing things before, you know, new uh, garbage disposal, whatnot. And, and that is a tough one. And so that's one where I think uh, I'd like to, to get a little bit, a little bit better with. I, th- I think we're all going to need to sign up for a class at Home Depot. I think the ROI on that could actually be pretty strong. Plumbing or electricity or both? Both. Skills. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, no doubt. we got some work to do. All right, Jason Moser, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Fuller. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.